The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning. This is Pastor V. Mark Smith of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. We give you a warm welcome to our service. Today is April the 19th. This is our virtual service, which provides an opportunity for the members of our church and friends to hear a message from the Word of God during this time that we are unable to meet because of the COVID-19 crisis. This is not a substitute for the fellowship of the church, and so we anxiously wait for this band to end, and we will be together again as the body of Jesus Christ. We begin our family worship time with a call to worship. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, we will begin reading with verse number 15 and continue reading uh, down to chapter 2 and verse number 10. So Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. This is the word of God. Now I'd like you to take your Bibles again, and let's go 
back to the book of Ephesians in the third chapter, the third chapter of Ephesians, and we're now several weeks into this absence from the fellowship of the church. This is unusual for all of us, and in some ways it's a very painful experience, but at the same time, it presents to us a challenge in which we need greater faith in our Lord and Savior. Our faith is tested in these times, and as pastor, I'm concerned about being away from church. I'm concerned about being away for long periods, and it makes me wonder when this time is over what what this body, uh, church body, our, our Christians will look like. And I don't mean physically, because I know some have grown beards while we're away. I hope none of the ladies have, but... Um, our hair has grown. You can't get a haircut, so we'll come back together. Maybe we'll look like an old hippie commune. So I'm not speaking of our, of our physical looks, but who will be with us? Who will fall out because their faith was too weak? And what will this church look like if this social ban continues too long? In normal times, it's hard to keep people consistent with church attendance, and it naturally would be much harder to keep people interested in church when we have no outlet for fellowship. And you see me by, by the video, if you care to watch. So I have this fear, but I am thankful that I've talked with many of our church members who believe that this experience will strengthen us as a church. And by not being in church for this extended period of time, people will want it back. We'll begin to realize what we lost uh, in the fellowship of the church, what we have here at Berean, and then we'll resolve to serve Christ in much better ways. And I believe that very well might be true. We must have confidence that we are God's people, and each of us has the same spirit of Christ in us, and we will not forsake the church because we will not forsake Christ. And I want to make that very clear. When you turn your back on the church, you also turn your back on Christ because the church is the body of Christ. Now, I'd like us to look at this passage in Ephesians and think of how we should live and what drives us and what keeps our faith alive when we don't have a corporate setting of the fellowship of the church. Is our faith weakened or is it deepened in these times? Well, I think this passage speaks to us of a deeper faith. We don't lose our faith, but faith increases as we learn how much more we must depend upon God. And perhaps that's the reason that God has brought us into this trial while he's testing us in our lives in this way, because maybe what God is doing is sorting out his people, sorting out his church, and we'll see who those are that truly don't know Christ. Now, if you're here in Ephesians chapter 3, I'd like you to go to verse number 14. And I want you to recognize first that this verse is a prayer. This passage is a prayer. The Apostle Paul begins in verse number 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, this is a prayer. At the beginning of December of this Last year, I, I preached a message in our Second Thessalonians series about Paul's prayers. And we noted that when Paul prayed, his prayers were very deeply spiritual. 
In this passage, there isn't a reference to what these Christians needed physically and materially. And I dare say this is the thing that's on our minds today. I'm sure that your job, your food, your house payments, what you need physically is most definitely on your mind because in this shutdown, we all have physical needs. The American economy has been affected and I can tell you that these Christians in Ephesus also had many material and physical needs. But Paul didn't mention the material needs, neither did he mention his own. And most of our prayers are filled with our problems. They're filled with our financial problems. They're filled with our, with our relationship problems, with our health problems. Will you have enough money to meet your obligations? And then what about this? When you talk about relationships, what about those stresses and the strains of being locked in the house with husband and wife and kids that you don't normally spend this much time with? Is that a hardship for you? Do you have to pray and ask the Lord not for you to blow a fuse and pray that you don't lose your cool and kill each other? So you do pray for your relationships. Well, Paul doesn't mention any of these concerns. Rather, he concentrates on the spiritual part of how these people might work, how these Christians could have Christ real in them so they would be totally devoted to him and his work. And this is what it means to be a spiritual Christian, to be totally devoted to Christ and his work. And the real question is, how much priority does God have in our lives? The physical and the material don't matter if Christ does not dwell in our hearts by faith. And if we're not moving on to be more mature Christians and being made into the image of Christ, it, it really doesn't matter what else we do. Successful Christianity is not in health and wealth and prosperity. None of those are the real signs of God's blessings in your life. They may be some indicators of it. But too often what we do is make those the main indicators where we, where we equate financial gain with God's blessings when rather the Bible speaks more about the deceit of riches than it does the blessings of them. So successful Christianity is not found in those things, but it's found in the relationship that we have with God as he lives in us and works through us. Jesus taught that first we must seek the kingdom of God. First, we are to look at the spiritual. And he tells us not to take any thought for the material. In other words, we don't need to develop a separate theology for material things as many preachers do. God knows that you can't work for him if you can't live. Most Christians aren't rich because it was never God's intention they would be. And when you think about who, who were the most spiritual Christians, I think first would come to our mind the apostles. They weren't wealthy. They never talked too much about uh, their material needs. Um, we would think that the most godly people, if health, wealth, and prosperity is true, then the most godly people would have many, 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 many things. But we see the apostles desired nothing. They had nothing. They only wanted to serve Christ. Now, Paul learned himself. He learned himself to live without anything but the basics and to be content with what God gave him. And so there were very few times that he prayed for the material we never see him moaning and groaning for those things. We never see him 
uh, upset about those things. He didn't care where he was, if that's where God put him, if God wanted him to be there. And when he wrote this letter, he was in prison. And I think that we would all find it very difficult not to complain if we were serving Christ from a jail cell. But Paul wasn't that way. His focus was on the people. It's on these that he had led to the Lord, that he had organized into churches, and he was concerned about their spiritual welfare. And his desire was that they would reach the spiritual plane on which he lived. And this was the plane of faith, the plane of an abiding faith in the promises of God. And Paul didn't want these people to do this because he expected to be like he was because he expected that they were some sort of race of super saints because they weren't. These were just ordinary men and women just like you and me. And they could live on the same spiritual plane where Paul was because they had the same Holy Spirit living in them. And this is what I want to talk to you about today. How do you get from average Christianity, where most people are, to above average Christianity? C.H. Spurgeon said that there is as much difference between the average Christian and a spiritual Christian as there is between a lost man and a saved man. And all of us that know the Lord know how radical a difference that is. And so you can see that we have a lot of ground to cover before we can get to this higher spiritual life. And so here, beginning in verse number 14, our focus, what we want to read here, our focus is going to be on these verses and especially the first part of verse number 17. And so we'll read here in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse uh, number 14. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth all understanding so that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. And now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let me go back to verse number 19 and read that correctly for you. And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a lot of good material in these verses, but today I want to concentrate on the first phrase of verse number 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. The subject today is the habitation of faith. Paul's desire is that Christ would inhabit your life by faith. Now back in the book of Hebrews, the one of the points that the author makes is that since we become Christians, we need to have a progression of learning what it means to know Christ. The author describes the foundation of 
of Old Testament principles that need to be improved upon. For example, he mentions faith in God. And you may wonder, how, how is it possible to improve upon or to have greater faith in God? Now, he means that faith in God isn't complete. It isn't complete until we realize that Jesus Christ is the manifestation of God and that all of our hope is concentrated in him. Now, people often speak of their faith in God. You'll speak to many people. You'll come across many people that say, oh, yes, I believe in God. I have faith in God. But they don't know God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so they might as well say, I have faith in cornflakes. Faith in God is not the Christian faith unless it's totally reliant upon Jesus Christ. Faith in God is not the faith of the Bible without Christ. That's a faith in an imaginary God, not the God of the Bible. Well, in the same way in which the Hebrews were encouraged to move from faith to God to the realization of Christ in God, so we shouldn't be content with the simplicity of the gospel message. But rather what we want to do is to go on and increase our understanding of the relationship that we have with Christ that has been created by that faith in him. We're not to satisfy ourselves with a simple faith that taught us about Christ, but we are to uh, build upon that faith and deepen it and have it anchored solidly in the truths of God's word. And the method that we use to accomplish that is to be diligent about the study of the word and pray that God will use his word to strengthen our faith and to take us deeper into the depths of our dependence upon God. We can't progress in the faith if we don't learn more about the faith. Faith is the way that Christ dwells in us. If that is the way, then more knowledge of the faith is the way that we are strengthened with might by the Spirit. And I want to remind you that blessed truth that the Word in you is Christ in you. The Word in you is the Spirit in you. You can't be filled with Christ if you're not filled with the Word. Now today I want to show you the kind of faith that moves you from average Christianity to spiritual Christianity. And here you'll find nothing more than the application of what is revealed in the Scripture. This is not the secret of the Christian life. I'm not going to hold up a book for you and tell you to go get this at the bookstore and say, if you'll read this, you will have the secret of the Christian life. And the reason that I don't is because these things were never secret. These are written in the Word of God. They're plainly shown to us in the Word of God. Now, first, I want to talk to you about the reality of faith. What is faith? Well, we need to understand the different meanings of faith as it's used in the scripture before we can determine what Paul means in verse number 17. What is this faith that he speaks of? Now, most of you know the classical definition of faith. In Hebrews, the writer defines faith in this way. This is Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that is the only place in the Bible where you'll find faith defined. And it might surprise you that the faith that is spoken of in that passage is not the faith that brings us to salvation. Now, sometimes the Bible speaks of faith in that way. It speaks of saving faith. Of course, it does. 
Paul spoke to the Philippian jailer about saving faith. He said, believe that it's have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus said to a woman that touched him, by faith hath made thee whole. So the Bible speaks of faith in that way, the faith that we must have that brings us to Jesus Christ, faith in the, the resurrection of Christ, faith in the gospel of Christ. And then at other times, the Bible speaks of faith in this way. It speaks of the collection of a whole body of Christian doctrine. This is the way that Jude used the word when he said, earnestly contend for the faith. He means all of the doctrines of Christianity. And again, in Ephesians 3.17 and Hebrews 11 verse 1, neither of these uses is the way that Paul used this word faith. In these places, in Hebrews and here in the book of Ephesians, the faith that Paul talks about is confidence. It's a confident faith by which we know that Everything that God says is true. It's the full assurance that all the promises of God will come true. One of those promises that we live in is the promise of the second coming. We have faith in the second coming of Christ. And this is a practical faith that keeps us working as we wait on Christ to return. That is a faith, a deep faith that will change, will change our whole approach to life. Peter says that kind of faith will change your lives to godliness and holiness. And so I can tell you if your life is not, your Christian life is not characterized by holiness and by godliness, if your lifestyle contradicts faith in Christ, then you've not reached this level of spirituality that Paul describes. In fact, you don't have the faith that he's talking about and it may very well be possible that you don't have saving faith. Faith in this verse is real. It's not imaginary. It's not a slippery thing that you can't get hold of. No, this is a faith that shows up in everyday living. At its core, it is the foundation of your hope and your confidence in God. Now, we notice in our text verse that Paul says that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. So we see that he means something other than saving faith because these are people that are already saved. They have the faith that's brought them to Christ. So Paul hardly needs to pray for that kind of faith. What does he mean by Christ dwelling or inhabiting their hearts by faith? Well, evidently there's something else for them to own. There's something beyond what they already have because he prayed that they would achieve it. Whatever it is, it will be good for them. It will lift them beyond that initial faith that they received when they believed in Christ as Savior. And let me say before I go further that he's not speaking here of another work of grace. I mean, he is not speaking of what some call a fresh anointing. He's not talking about getting some other part of the Holy Spirit that you don't have yet. He's not praying for a supernatural gift of the Spirit. This is not a tongues experience. It's not a healing experience. It's not an emotional high that would cause them to bark like dogs or to be slain in the Spirit. Now, this is the Spirit of Christ who dwells by faith, and He is in every Christian in the same way. This is about increasing that faith in the one who already lives in you. And this kind of faith, increasing that faith, is the normal progression of the Christian life. 
Now notice first that this faith is available to every Christian, but only to Christians. This is not for unbelievers. You can't develop faith in God and have this kind of confidence, this kind of faith, until you have the other kind. You must have saving faith. That is always a prerequisite to living faith. And if you've not believed in Christ, you can't have confidence that God has anything to do with you. The Bible teaches that the prayers of an unbeliever are useless. You have no favor with God without Christ. And that is perfectly reasonable. When you reject the Son, the one that God sent to be a sacrifice, one who shed his blood and gave his life as a sacrifice for sin, and you say, I don't need that sacrifice, I don't need his blood, then how could you more offend God? This is the reason that God wants nothing to do with you. Now let's talk for a moment about this faith in Ephesians 3.17. It isn't saving faith because they're already saved. It's not the initial faith of justifying faith because they're already justified. Rather, we need to notice the word dwell. Dwell, that is the key word. There is a sense in which no one can be a Christian unless Christ dwells in him. You can't be saved if Christ doesn't dwell in you. Now, if that's what Paul meant, though, if he meant being saved, then what we have here is a useless tautology that is a vain repetition because he prays for something that they already have. And I, I would think that it's impossible for Paul to prayer, pray a useless prayer. This is a Holy Spirit-guided prayer, and this is yet to be achieved. It is available. It can be apprehended by these Ephesian Christians, and by extension, it is available to us as well because these scriptures are written for us and for our learning and to build us in our faith. So dwell, that's the word that we need to examine and this is a special word that means to settle down. He says that Christ might come and settle down in your life. It's like saying that you and Christ get comfortable together. You're comfortable being together. Could you imagine that a lost person would be comfortable with Christ? Scribes and the Pharisees hated Christ because he made them so uncomfortable. Now, this word means to come in and to settle down. It's like when you are enough at home that you take your shoes off, you put them up on the coffee table. You're not going to do that in someone else's house if it's not your home. This is what you do in the place where you live, where you permanently live, where you feel comfortable, and you're not just a visitor. And Christ can live in you in that way. All Christians has lives that Jesus can come into and dwell to live in comfort that he owns the house and he belongs there. Now, now understand here, there, there is a problem. This faith is not apprehended by all Christians. There are Christians that live without this kind of faith. They can have this kind of faith, but few truly do. Not all Christians are at this place in their, in their lives, that they could live the way that Paul gave an example. You see, some of you know Christ, but you don't really know him. Do you understand what I mean? You know him, but you don't really know him. You deal with Christ, or you, you talk about Christ. You may speak of him. You may talk about a relationship, but you haven't yet really become comfortable with him. He's not in the center of your life. So Christ is on the outside looking in 
at your life and you're just not comfortable with him. He's not the sinner. He's standing outside looking through a window. And what he wants is not really what you want. What God wants is too often an afterthought. You don't consider whether your activities are his activities. You don't think about how should a Christian function in this world, and that's not really too much your concern. Many Christians are Sunday Christians. That's pretty much the extent of their Christianity. Not everyday Christians. Now the Bible describes these types of Christians when he wrote to the seven churches of Asia. The problem is graphically demonstrated at the end of several rebukes in those passages in which Christ is standing outside of the house rather than sitting in the house. This is what we see in Revelation 3, verse number 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And that may very well be one of the most misunderstood verses in Scripture because many want to put saving faith and say saving faith is the issue in that verse. This is not speaking of lost people. This is not the door to a lost person's uh, heart. Christ does not need you to open that door because the Holy Spirit opens that door and Christ comes in when he wants to come in. Rather, this is speaking of the faith of the church. This is speaking of individuals in the church that Christ wants to come into the door of the church and to individual Christians and come in and dwell comfortably. So what do we need to do? Well, we must open those inner recesses of our heart and let Jesus come in and settle down. And we must realize that he is the master of this house, of your house, your body, your house. And we must acknowledge his rightful place. How do we do that? Jesus told us how. In John 14, verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, if a man love me, what will he do? He will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. How does Jesus become comfortable with you? Well, the only way is by obedience to his word. And he says, if you keep my words, my father and I, we will come and make our abode with you. In other words, our place of dwelling. He will not come into a house that's filled with sin. Disobedience is dirt and he can't be comfortable where there is sin. And let me tell you something about sin. You'll not be comfortable with Jesus around if your house is dirty. If your life is a mess with the wickedness of sin, you and Jesus will be feuding roommates. Now there are several passages right here in the book of Ephesians about keeping the house clean. What do you need to get out to make Jesus comfortable? Well, let's just take our Bibles and look at, and look at these passages again right here in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, we'll start there at verse number 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing that which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, 
that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Now, if you look at verse number 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. In the fifth chapter, verse number three, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ, and of God. In verse 11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, when you get rid of all these things, and there's a good list there, to get rid of all these things, you're going to find yourself most likely with an empty house. Well, you can't be comfortable in an empty house either. What you need to do is to furnish your house. So what do you put in place of all of this beat-up furniture that you've just carried out? Well, Paul goes on to tell us how we are to furnish the house. In the fourth chapter, verse 1, Therefore, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In verse 24, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Verse 32, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Chapter 5, verse number 2, And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And then listen to this one. You want a happy home? This is what you're doing right now in your homes as you worship today? You're fulfilling this next passage. Ephesians 5, speaking to yourself, verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How will Christ be happy in your house and with you by faith? By you getting rid of the junk and putting in your house the furniture of heaven. Christ is comfortable in familiar surroundings. So we have the reality of faith. Next, number two, is the activity of faith. This kind of faith is not about what just is on the inside. This faith likes to take a walk around the neighborhood. This faith doesn't stay bottled up while you commune with God and the rest of the world goes to hell. This faith that Paul speaks of is an active faith. First, this faith has vision. Now, I want to go back to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, because following the definition of faith that's given in that chapter, there are given great examples of it. There, there's found in that chapter the vision of some of the Bible's greatest characters. We notice in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. In other words, they understood this world was not their home. 
And this verse comes at the end of the examples of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. They all died in faith, being persuaded of the promises of God. They'd not yet realized all that God had for them, but they had a vision of these promises through faith, and that's what gave them their hope and their confidence. Their confidence is expressed in the word persuaded. So these Old Testament people were different from others. They saw something others didn't see. Noah saw something different. He built an ark in the middle of a dry field. Enoch saw something different. He walked by faith and he escaped the world without dying. Abraham saw something different. He left friends and family. He followed God without knowing where he was going. So what was it that made these people move out from the ordinary? And the only answer is a deeper faith. That God was central. Christ is central. That God had settled down to be the overriding influence in every area of their lives. They were persuaded. And that's what Paul was. He was persuaded. Listen to this wonderful verse that he wrote just before his death. This is in 2 Timothy 1, verse number 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul lived in this persuasive faith. And he says, I'm not ashamed of it. In other words, he's not disappointed in a faith that as we look at it, a faith that had landed him in prison... Why wasn't he ashamed of that kind of faith? Because he knew at death, he was persuaded at death, he would open his eyes to the eternal riches of heaven. Christ dwelled in him. Now the question for us is, will our faith cause us to move out and do something for God? There is a difference in being an average Christian and a hero of the faith. If you ask me what is a hero of the faith, I'll tell you that a hero of the faith is a member of Berean Baptist Church who has yielded himself to the cause of Christ. That is, his faith motivates him to always obey Christ. So first is that vision being persuaded that you will get what you can't see. Secondly is the conviction of faith. In Hebrews, the word is persuaded. They were persuaded of God's promises. And what does that persuasion do? Well, if Noah had looked at his ability, he would have said, no way that I can build an ark that will hold all of these animals. And by the way, he might say to God, what is a boat? And what is rain? Persuasion took Noah from being a farmer to shipbuilding. And we're not talking about a about a dugout canoe or a 16-foot bass boat. Here, here we're speaking of a 450-foot ocean liner. And so here's how it may be for you. You may say, you know, there's no way that I can make that kind of commitment to Christ. There's no way that I can commit myself to the church in that way. I'm busy. I have a job. Well, I hope you have a job. I have a job. I can't put myself on the line for God's work. Well, hold on. Let me talk to you about, about Paul's audience. Many of them were slaves. You can go on and read in chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. They were forced to work the hours the master required. In one sense, you know, their lives weren't theirs. They were controlled by someone else. And yet they were dedicated wholly to Christ. 
Most of these people were uneducated. They weren't refined. They had little hope for any material gain. And these are the kinds of people that God uses. Not many mighty, not many noble. He uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Weak things to confound the mighty. Are you persuaded enough in the truth of God's holy word that you are convicted that the faith of Hebrews chapter 11 is possible for you? Just stop and think about that for a moment. Think about this. What would Christianity look like if everyone had the same commitment as you? Would the church have survived for 2,000 years if everybody was like you? Could we pull this church back together after this band if everybody is like you? Now, here's what we need. You must see the vision and you must feel the conviction. And when you do, you will perform the action. God doesn't ask you to do the impossible unless he enables the impossible. If you do nothing at all, you have no vision and you have no conviction. Now, the final aspect of Christ inhabiting us by faith is the exclusivity of faith. That is, Christ can't fill what's already filled. For him to dwell in you in a deeper way, all the things that you are otherwise filled with must go. Now, we just read verses that tell us the things that we need to get rid of. But, but how about this? When we do get rid of all of that junk, there is always one thing left. And the one thing left is you. The hardest thing for us to get rid of is self. Because most of us are just filled to the brim with self. Well, if we're filled with self, where is Christ going to live? Where is his room? The faith that Paul speaks of is not to be filled with self and Jesus. This is a house that's full of only Jesus. So your life must be his exclusive territory. Now let me, let me explain for just a moment how this progression goes as you move from self to Jesus. Now, first, everyone is in the stage of self. Isn't that true? I mean, this is what you are. No matter, no matter who you are, this is the way you always start out. Everybody in the world is filled with self. And this is the reason when pandemics occur, we are overcome with fear for ourselves. In whatever area, it's fear for ourselves. So everybody comes into the Christian life this way because that's the way that you've always lived your life. But when Christ comes in you to dwell, at first, all you have is that saving faith that you believed in Him. It's wonderful. You have to have saving faith. But that faith is not yet developed into a living faith. And don't misunderstand. I'm not saying here that, that it's possible for you to be a Christian and Christ not be the Lord of your life. No, He is the Lord of your life. But you haven't yet begun to explore all the facets of that relationship. But you find yourself strangely willing to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do because the Spirit makes you willing. Now you'll read Scripture. Now you'll want to deepen that relationship. You hear Jesus when he says hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so when you do, you partake of that healthy diet of the word and you drink of his life of righteousness and then spiritual health begins to improve. And as it improves, you move on from less of self to more of Jesus. And that scale is tilting now more towards Jesus. And this is the Christian who now has become 
more willing to be involved in the church. Changes that happened are radical. They're opposite of the way that you were before. So maybe we could say there needs to be a warning sign here. You may not be ready for what happens next when you get into this stage because at some point you're going to realize this thing of serving Christ with all that I am, this thing of Christ dwelling in my heart by faith and my, my giving all of myself to Him, it's, it's more than I thought it would be. It takes more time than I thought it would take. It takes more energy than I thought it would take. It's more consuming than I thought. And so the temptation is always to pull back. But you continue to read the Bible. And you continue to pray. And the Spirit speaks and urges you to keep on going to perfection. That is what Paul's talking about. Well, the urge becomes so strong when you're doing these things that you don't want to stop. And if you take the plunge into this stage, then you are headed where Paul was. You're going where Paul was. He said, it's possible for you to be there. You can do this. Jesus said, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. And so now you plow forward and you move into the place that God desires you to be. Finally, it comes to none of self and all of Jesus through prayer through reading, through instruction in sermons, through daily commitments to push forward. Your life is cleaned up. You live a holy life. Gone is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's all gone. And there is nothing left but Jesus. Jesus stated the principle of Matthew 16, 24. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. That's how you get to the place that Christ dwells in you by faith. When you deny self, you've gone all the way over to Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, there is no one who denies self who is not a committed follower of Christ. No one denies self who's not a fully committed follower of Jesus. Write it down, mark it down, underline it. And so do you know what becomes... What, what's termed evil? What is evil for that kind of a Christian? It's affections and lust. It's the old life you used to live. It's the gratification of self, the way you used to live. Galatians 5.24 says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections, affections and lust. Putting down self, that will be a constant battle. It's not easily won. It, it, self will, will stick up its ugly head. All the time. You have to work on it every day or self will creep back in. But what we're looking at here then is the key to Ephesians 3.17. As I said, there's no mystery in it. It's found in the teachings of Jesus. Read what Jesus said. Read what the apostles said. Read, read your scriptures. And ask yourself, is this where I am? Have you fallen so deeply in love with Jesus that he's all that matters? Look again at our text, verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what Paul prays for. He prays for confidence in Christ. He prays that you will know the love of Christ that passes knowledge and you will be filled with the fullness of God.
Are you persuaded of him? Are you convicted? Are you convinced of all of God's promises? Or do you have doubts? Do you have fears? Have those been removed? Did you know that doubt doesn't coexist with Jesus? If he's in you with the living faith, doubt is thrown out. And that's when Jesus comfortably settles in. I think that we're going to make it through this. I, I believe we'll make it through as a thriving church. We will come back together for Christ. And if something happens that it's not here, none of us knows what the future holds. None of us knows how, how bad this can get, how serious it will be. Only God knows. But I do know this, that if it doesn't happen down here, I am persuaded, as Paul was, that it will happen up there. That we will come to the assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. We will come to God, who is the judge of all and of just men made perfect. We will come to the mediator of the new covenant. And that will happen if Christ dwells in our heart by faith. Members of Berean Baptist Church, we hope, we pray, it won't be that much longer. And I hope that while you're in your homes going through this, that you haven't lost sight of Jesus Christ, that you live for him every day. And those of you listening right now with your children, I know this is the principles that you're teaching them, and this will help them to live a, a life of greater faith in Jesus Christ. You know, you hear on television all the time, we're in this together. They're advertising it all the time. We're in this together. We're going to get through this. We are in this together. They don't even have a half of an idea what that means to a Christian. Because we are all one in Jesus Christ. We are united to him by faith. And yes, it is absolutely true. We're in it together. And we'll get through it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for so many blessings that you give. Help us to dwell on those things. To think of all the things that you've given. All the things that we still have. Though things of the world in many cases have been taken away from us. Life is not the usual life that we've been living. But it can still be a life that's lived for the glory of God. And help us to be a strong and shining example for others. Help us to live the faith of Jesus Christ. That deep abiding faith with with persuasion of all the promises that you've given. Thank you, Father. Bless our church. Strengthen us all. We give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.